Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. We've had a full day already. I hope you're doing well. It is uh, great to see you. If you're a guest today, uh, we just want to invite you to stop by the first-time guest tent uh, before you leave today. We've got a gift for you, just uh, some things to say thank you for coming and checking us out. And I was just thinking after the first service, isn't it pretty amazing the things that can happen when we gather together as believers? Like hopefully your soul's already been encouraged. We've sung some songs. Uh, something that I could say in the message could change the direction of your life. God could do something in your heart, actually change people's eternity. So that's pretty crazy to think about. Um, especially when I think about who I am, uh, the one sharing it with you, because I'm so broken and messed up. But that God could take some words, just words that are said, and they could influence you and influence your eternity. That's pretty amazing. I know we've prayed a few times together in the service already, but I want us to pray just in light of that, just kind of taking our hearts before God and saying, here, do whatever you want, and uh, we'll see what He does in these next few moments. Sound good? Yeah, let's pray. Father, um, we just come into Your presence right now, um, acknowledging we are frail. We are frail people. We need you. We, need, we are dependent on you for breath. Um, so we need you to give us energy. We need you to give us life. We need you to give us thoughts. Uh, we need you to do in us things that we could never do on our own. No one in this room can save themselves. And so we needed your son Jesus to die on the cross. We, no one here can, can even do the commands that you command us to do, but Jesus empowers us to do those things. And so, Father, will you speak to us in these moments? that we would just open our hearts to you. I know we had, you know, 22 people baptized on Easter, people at the beginning of their faith journey. Will you help them take the next faith steps? Will you have people in here that have been walking with you for 30, 40, 50 years? God, and they might have heard all these verses before. Will you speak something into their hearts they've never heard before that's by your Holy Spirit? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the first service, I was talking to a a student, he's a college student here, he actually moved away uh, from here and then came back and he was back at our church. He grew up here as a little kid and he was talking about a story that I shared in the first service in the message and he said, do you make that stuff up? He goes, because when I was a little kid, he's got a brother and sister, he goes, my brother and sister and I would get in the backseat of the car after service and go, there's no way that happened. That pastor's making that stuff up every week. He's like, how do these many things happen in your life? And so I said, we all have things that are happening in our lives. I said, I just have a job where then I, I, I give a spiritual truth to those things. When, when you're thinking about it, you all have different things that are happening in your life. Are you aware of what God's doing? And, and like I mentioned, we had 22 people baptized on Easter Sunday. Isn't that incredible? That's pretty awesome. Yeah, praise the Lord. We had different people that have, have trusted Christ that Sunday. We had uh, people that are at different places. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. And wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, I want to ask you this question today. Where are you headed? Where are you headed in life? Isn't it easy just in life to kind of just do the next thing? And you kind of get an autopilot or cruise control, and you're just kind of doing stuff. But where are you headed in life? Where are you headed in your career? Where are your relationships headed? Where are you headed with Jesus? And the story that I was sharing in the first service was that my family and I were uh, on vacation last week. We were down in Florida visiting some friends, and we drove down there. It's about, it depends on who's driving, it depends on how many times you stop, a 10 to 12 hour drive. So <clears throat> you, you don't have to ask us how, what our time was. Uh, <clears throat> but the way that it went for our family, as vacation was done, we were getting ready to head back, we knew where we were going. Rarely are there people that just hop in their car for a road trip and they don't know the destination. Pulled up the GPS, we're headed north. We're down in Florida, we're coming up this way. Now there are certain things about that drive that are fun, certain things that are not fun. I don't know what your perceptions are about a pastor's family, but we do not just all just pray together all the time, okay? 
We're not just always living in harmony. In fact, I have a few kids that have a unique spiritual gift of annoying everyone. And they can do it with incredible precision. And we're about to lock ourselves in a vehicle in close proximity with each other for about 11 hours together. And so we get everybody in the car, we take the stuff, we got the car top carrier on top, which is basically a bag strapped to the top of the car. So if you've ever been behind that guy in the expressway and you're bothered, I'm that guy. And so I'm loading up all the bags in there. We go to the gas station. We haven't even really left yet. When we get to the gas station, they're already talking, get out of my space, like marking their territory. Don't breathe on me. Why do you keep looking this direction? Like all that's happening. So to calm some of that down, I said, do you have any stuff? I still have some room in the car top carrier. Do you have any stuff you want me to stick in there? One of my daughters hands me a soccer ball that was at her feet. So I take the soccer ball. I wedge it in there. Now our bag on top of our car looks like it has a tumor because it's like suitcases and this ball on the side that's there. We hop on I-75. I love I-75. You know why I love I-75? Because people pass on the right, people pass on the shoulder, people pass on the left, they're driving all over, and there are more than two lanes. I hate I-95. I-95 is terrible because there's only two lanes, and some of y'all are doing a sport that I was never invited to called parallel driving, (laughs) right? So on I-75, it kind of, I say it, dilutes the stupidity of people that would drive parallel with each other. Because we have enough lanes that even if you do that, we can get past you. And so we're driving on I-75. We're going about an hour. Everyone falls asleep. This is like the perfect scenario for me. They're all sleeping. It's a beautiful day. I got my headphones in. I'm listening to podcasts. We're going speed limit-ish range. (laughs) And the way the sun's hitting the car... There's a shadow next to the car, and I can see the car top carrier in the shadow because you just look over, and it's like, it's there, it's there. And so I do that about every two or three minutes. I'm just like, yep, still there. One time I go to look at the side here, and it's still there. But as I'm turning to look back, I catch in my peripheral the, the side mirror on the car, and I see something. It looks like jumping around behind our car. The soccer ball had popped out. So it pops out, I'm going, I go, whoa, which Shannon wakes up, ball bounces, goes over that car, and then the next car swerves and gets on, it goes into the third lane, it's behind a semi, I don't know what happened to that point. If you were in an accident, I apologize about the soccer ball. I don't know, but I'm watching, I'm making noises, my wife woke up, and she goes, what's going on, what's happening, why are you going, whoa, and why do you keep staring back there? And I said, the soccer ball popped out, the bags must be open, before the suitcases come out, we gotta stop. So I stopped. We were headed in the right direction. We just had a defection, that's what happened. Thought the suitcases were going to fall out. They didn't fall out. But what had happened was all the suitcases that were in the car top carrier pushed so much pressure on the ball that it popped the zipper open and the ball shot out of there. <laughs> then I hop in the car. I'm driving for like 10 more hours still at this point. A lot of time to think. So I thought to myself, that's a lot like what many of us experienced in life recently. Economists call it the great resignation because literally millions of people are quitting their jobs. Not just to be unemployed, they just don't want that job. All the stats haven't come out yet, but I can tell you right now, divorce rates have increased. People are quitting their marriages. People are quitting churches, quitting on God, quitting lots of things because the pressure's building up. That soccer ball was moving in the right direction. It's kind of on autopilot, just cruising along with us, but the pressure got to be too much and it abandoned ship. That's where a lot of the Christians that, that are being written to in the book of Hebrews are at. And that's where a lot of people in our world are at. Where are you? And where are you headed? Our passage today tells us how to move forward in our faith. If you've got your Bibles, it's uh, Hebrews chapter 12. 
Uh, last week, Pastor Dave preached out of Hebrews chapter 11. We're not just skipping the last part of Hebrews 11. We're going to come back to it. That's going to be our whole summer series. As we walk through these different characters, Abraham, Noah, Enoch, Moses, all these different people that walked by faith, we're going to do a series on faith in the summer that's going to be based out of Hebrews chapter 11. So we're not just skipping that. But what happens is uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is being written to encourage people in their faith. Why? Because remember, these Hebrew Christians, they're disappointed. They're discouraged. Some of them have already given up. Many of them are contemplating giving up. And most of them are looking at the culture around them and seeing things are tough right now, but they seem like they're going to be getting worse. There's a lot of fear and uncertainty. And I think about what's happening now in our world. Christians and non-Christians. Talking about what, what's now. Inflation's at an all-time high. I've already mentioned in other sermons before, we're in the midst of a mental health crisis. We just mentioned, I just mentioned, uh, the great resignation. And so you think about what's happening in our world. Not many people are saying, our best days are ahead of us. It's like talking about the apocalypse, the end of the world. People don't even know Jesus. They're like, is Jesus coming back? Who's the Antichrist? Is it Putin? Is it Musk? Who is it? Like, there's not a lot of people going, it's going to get better. So there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of uncertainty. And that's who the author of this book is writing to, is Christians that are feeling that. Some of them have given up. Many of them are thinking about giving up. And remember what he said back in chapter 10? In our Easter message, the last verse, one of the last verses was Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, what pleases God, you may receive what is promised. Then a couple of verses later, it says in verse 39, but we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere or preserve their souls. So that's chapter 10. Chapter 10 tells us what to do. We need to endure. Chapter 11 tells us example after example of people who did endure. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Noah. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Moses. Then chapter 10, or chapter 12, tells us how. Therefore, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 12, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, plural, also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, there's that word again, the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, and so he's the example, the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so here this passage tells us how to move forward in our faith. There's three or four different directives in this passage to tell us how to move forward in our faith. The analogy that's being given is a runner running a race. That's the metaphor that we have of a picture of moving forward in the faith journey. So where are you headed? It's pretty rare for somebody just to show up at the airport and say, I'll just get on that plane. Where's it going? Hawaii or Cleveland? It's different. Most people don't go to the bus station to do that. Most people don't head out on a car trip to do that. Why would we do that in our spiritual journey? Where are you headed? Are you going forward? Are you in neutral? The Bible talks about that. It's not good. Are you going backward like that soccer ball? It's not good. And you notice, I don't know what your GPS is like. I only use my own. And I've used it before where it's trying to locate me. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's like we can't give you, the, you sometimes you just pop it in. It's like, turn right here, do this here. But then sometimes it's like, we're trying to assess your location. And I know this isn't from this text of Scripture. It'd be from multiple texts. But I thought it'd be a good idea today to take a pause before we talk about moving forward and ask ourselves where we're currently located spiritually. And so I want us to just do an assessment with each other today. Uh, really on your own. It's a self-assessment. You don't have to tell anybody the results. But what's going to happen is I'm going to share some categories of where you may be spiritually 
And I want you to be honest with yourself. We're not going to ask you to fill this out, tell anybody. We're not getting your email address and sending you stuff later, like none of that stuff. Just be honest with yourself and think that's, that's where I am. Or I, identify, I remember being there or whatever and give you some categories. Now, there's one category that I know we have in our church are people, you might call yourself a skeptic or a seeker. Maybe you're counting the cost, but you haven't even begun a relationship with Jesus yet. Okay, so you don't even have new life in Christ. Just be real clear about that. You haven't taken the first step. That can happen today. You can acknowledge your sin, ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, and begin a new life today. That's what Jesus calls in John chapter 3, being born again, experiencing new birth. The Bible talks about it throughout as new life in Christ. If you've done that, like I said, there were people that did that on Easter Sunday. We had people that were being baptized on Easter Sunday because they had just done that. Here's the reality. You're a baby in Christ, which is an exciting thing. And that's going to be the first category I want us to think about. Think about babies. Every baby that's born is a miracle. Amen? Everybody who's reborn, that's a miracle. Amen? God takes you from spiritually dead to giving you new life. That's an incredible miracle. But you think about babies. They're cute. They're exciting. They're a hot mess. Because they can't talk. They just cry. They just make a bunch of noise. They can't feed themselves. You've got to feed them. They can't walk. All they do is poop, okay? Let's just be real candid. That's why you wrap a thing, a diaper, cloth, whatever around them just to contain the mess. They're so messy. Just trying to contain it. New believers are exciting to be around. They got a lot of zeal. They're a hot mess, just so you know. It's a miracle to be a new believer. It's exciting to be a new believer. But don't stay there. The great tragedy of the church is there are many people who have been walking with Jesus for a long time that are still babies in Christ. They can't feed themselves. They don't really know how to walk. They just make a mess everywhere they go. You got to keep teaching them the basic stuff because they're not ready for anything else. Hebrews actually has already talked about this in Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, it says, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Then the analogy you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. It's okay to be a child. Everybody has to be a child. It's okay to be a baby. Everybody has to be a baby. But don't stay a baby. It, I've said it before. It's cute when a baby's sucking on a bottle. If you have a 40-year-old man sucking on a bottle, that's not cute. So if you're a baby in Christ, awesome. Amen. If you've been a baby for 40 years, get moving, man. you got a problem. Next stage, think about this, toddlers. Think about what happens with a toddler. A toddler has begun to learn how to walk. It's kind of clumsy, but they, they know how to walk. Uh, they're starting to learn how to talk. Have you seen the parents of a toddler ever before? They have a full-time job. Do you know what it is? Protecting that child from killing itself. Okay? So, so here's what happens sometimes with believers that move on from baby stage to the next stage is they've got some content. They know some things, but they're dangerous in what they know. And so you watch the parent. You, parents, you never probably thought phrases like this would come out of your mouth until you had a toddler. Don't stand on the stove. Stop licking the dog. Why are you wrapping that around your neck? Like you just think, we never have to say these things. But you have to say them because they're toddlers and you're protecting them from themselves. So with believers, you know, they become a believer and they're excited and they start to get some content. That's where you get people that say things like this. Like they learn about the love of God. It's incredible. Or the grace of God. But then they, you talk about wrath. They're like, oh, I don't believe in a God like that. It's like, well, it's the same God. And they don't have enough wisdom yet to know that you don't really understand grace and love and mercy until you understand wrath and justice and righteousness. 
Then when you understand them, then it becomes more rich. But how many believers do you have? You see them posting stuff on social media even. They're like, I only believe in this. It's like, well, that's not the God of the Bible. I'm not sure. Are you Christian? They're just so dangerous. It's called heresy when it has to do with teaching. They're so dangerous, you've got to protect them from themselves. A toddler. The next day is teenagers. Think about spiritual teenagers. What's a teenager like? <laughs> Some of you have teenagers like, ooh, be careful. It's going to happen here. Everybody who's older than that has been a teenager. Um, if I say anything that you feel like is derogatory, I'm not talking about your teenager. It's all those other teenagers, kind of stereotypical. If you think about what it's like to be a teenager, you've learned to think critically. You have some content at this point. What you lack is experience. Here's the hard part for a teenager a lot of times. Teenagers think to themselves things like this. They might not say it, but if everyone would just listen to me, the world would be a better place. <laughs> and they think parents just don't understand. Like, your parents just can't get it. You didn't even have a phone when you were my age. Like, how did you know? You don't even know when I tell you to get some new drip, Mom. You don't even know what I mean. No cap. If you don't know what that means, you're the problem. <laughs> and so you can learn the lingo, do this. They still think you don't get it, and so they say stuff to you. And if you have some wisdom, you look at your teenager and think, I'm so sorry, Mom. I did that to you, didn't I? Oh, man. <laughs> because now you've got some wisdom, because you know what you're seeing it's not just pride. Like what you're seeing is they've got some information. They actually do have some content. They can think for themselves, but they lack experience. They have information without application. And this is where I believe, I don't have a study on this, but just my experience, I believe 80 to 90% of believers in RDU are trapped right here because we have a lot of content. We've got podcasts, preaching, devotional books, devotional emails, sermons are coming out of everywhere. You can imagine video clips, little all kinds of stuff. We've got more information than any believers ever had throughout human history. How do we have so much information and lack application? I was sharing just candidly with our, our pastors. We were in a, a pastoral leadership meeting a couple weeks ago, I think it was, and I told them, and I, it sounded arrogant at first, but I've been, I mean, I've been studying the Bible for 25 years or so, Greek and Hebrew and kind of doctorate in this stuff. I was like, I don't need to read any more of the Bible. Now, I need it to like just remind me of myself and my relationship with Jesus, but I don't need more content. What I lack is doing the Bible. It's just application, like putting, what, the problem that's becoming embarrassing in my life is how much I know that I don't do, where the app, the, like it just needs to line up with each other. And if you're stuck at that teen stage, that's exactly you. You see this on Facebook posts too, right? Like you see people that talk to the rest of the world from their platforms, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is, and they're saying, like if, just, if the rest of the world just thought this, everybody would be good. So arrogant and lacks application. The next stage is where Christianity starts to get exciting. It's a young adult stage. As a young adult, you start to know your identity, uh, you start to have an idea of the direction of your life. You know some of your gifts and how to use some of those gifts. And here's the key turning point of application. You begin to reproduce. So let me just say this before we go any further. If you're a follower of Christ and you've never made a disciple, you have not even made it to the young adult stage and you can't skip past the young adult stage. So if you've never made a disciple, that's application 101, go make disciples. You will be my witnesses. Like that is putting it in practice. You're still stuck at best at the teenage stage. So young adults, they begin to put this stuff into practice. They begin to apply it. Now, they don't have a ton of experience, but they have some experience at this stage. The next stage are adults. There's some maturity in an adult. 
They have wisdom. There's some spiritual maturity. There's emotional maturity. There's, there, there's some not just knowledge of the Bible, but you've tried it and messed it up, which then leads to, and I believe this is the key characteristic understanding of somebody who's gotten to this stage, humility. So, yes, you may know the truth, but just blasting it at everybody who's never tried or don't even know Jesus probably isn't the best way to do it. And you've made some mistakes so that when the teenagers come to you and talk to you like you just don't understand, you've got grace to remember, I was there once. I know what that's like. You probably need to mess up a few times, and then we can talk some more. There's a a maturity to an adult. They've got wisdom and experience. They made mistakes. The next stage, I don't think very many people ever make it to. It's rare air. It's a sage. A sage is someone that other people look at and go, how did they get there? I want to be there. I want to know what they know. And I want to live like they live with a peace and a joy and a love and a gentleness and a kindness. They, they exude the fruit of the Spirit. I think of people like the Apostle Paul. But here's something you need to know, even if you're a sage. You have not arrived. Don't stay there. Paul says in one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament of his writings, it's in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I'd lose everything for the sake of knowing Christ. Like everything in my life, my resume, my family, my money, like I'd give it all up to know Christ more. And usually we stop after he says that. He says that famous verse, Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, the power of the resurrection, even if I have to share in the sufferings of the cross. If that'll help me know Christ more, that's what I want. And we're like, yeah. We don't usually read the next verses. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12 He says this, right after he said, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering, he says, not that I've already obtained this, so even he hasn't arrived, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so he's using this running analogy, like the author of Hebrews is using, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Where are you? Wherever you're at, do you want to move forward? Because that's what Hebrews tells us how to do. Whether you're a baby or a sage or somewhere in between, Hebrews chapter 12, we're at this point in the book now, where it's transitioning into application. Not only do you need to endure, let's talk about how. How do you endure? And there are three or four points here. We do not have time to cover all that. So this is a two-part message, just FYI. If you're here today, you're obligated to come back next week. <laughs> if you want to know the end of the message, you've got to come back next week because all we're going to do is scratch the surface on this text right now. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the first thing that we're told is this. Pay attention to who we are running with. Pay attention to who we are running with. You want to move forward? You want to grow in your faith? Then pay attention to who you're running with. Look what it says, Hebrews chapter 12, back to our passage in verse 1. It says, therefore, therefore, anytime you see the word therefore, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is it there for? Cheesy thing to say, helps you remember, I'm teaching you how to feed yourself. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, in light of whatever came before, but that was chapter 11. It's just a whole bunch of examples. Okay, those were the cloud of witnesses we're going to read about in just a second. But therefore, I believe ties back at least to chapter 10 and verse 36, probably to the previous four chapters, which all told the same thing. Remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36? For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Well, then go back to this passage, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
Let us run with endurance. There's that word. The race which set before us. And then it's going to talk about how Jesus endured the cross. So now we're getting the how. How do we do this? And the first thing that we're told in this passage is to pay attention to this cloud, this great group of witnesses. But did you notice the last part of this? I think it would be an error to not point this out. Let us run. That's the command of the whole passage. Everything hangs on that. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So you see all these different people, and they all have different stories, but it's the same thing. They kept their eyes on Jesus. They were focused on the reward, the prize. We're going to talk about next week. That's joy, which is something everybody in this world is actually seeking. But the people that in chapter 11, they get, where does this joy come from, and how do I actually experience this joy, and ultimately, where is it leading me? That's what many of us miss. So they're going this way. They're going to the same goal, the same prize, but they're all going a different course. And did you notice the last part of verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1? The race that's set before us. <laughs> we all have the same prize, Jesus. We all have the same motivation, joy. But we all have our own course of getting there. Everybody has their own story. Your course, my course, not the same course. So you've got to run your race. You think about that. We see this in the Bible, right? Like one of my favorite passages of stories in the Bible is Peter, because Peter's always saying dumb stuff. I do that all the time. So I love that guy. But in, he's denied Jesus and gets restored in John chapter 21. And then he's walking with Jesus along the Sea of Galilee, and they're talking, and Jesus tells him what's going to happen in his life. Can you even imagine that? Like some of us think, if God just would tell me what to do, then I'd do it. Really? Would you? Would you? I don't know if I would, because I think I might negotiate. Like, what if he says you're going to have to move to Cleveland instead of Hawaii? Or you're like, hey, how about Raleigh? It's kind of better. It's not, not. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to get killed for following me. And you know what Peter says? There was another guy that was there. His name was John. He says, what about this guy? <laughs> so that was, that was first century Facebook, by the way. <laughs> Like now we're like, you're struggling with your kids and you get on there and you're like, some kid's got a valedictorian speech. You're like, jerk, I want to hit the… <laughs> just so you know, the problem's not social media. It's just revealing our hearts. The Bible teaches we're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. If we just did what the Bible said, we'd be all set. The problem's not Twitter and Instagram, but it helps expose what's going on in our hearts. Peter had the same heart. He goes, what about this guy? Do you know what Jesus says to him? He gives a hypothetical. He goes, what if I did the exact opposite thing in his life? That doesn't matter. You follow me, John chapter 21. You keep your eyes on me, Hebrews chapter 12. We're being told to run this race, and how do we do that? We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. You have your race. I have my race. It says, therefore, because we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, that connects us back to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is pretty incredible because you think about what the command is here, is to run this race, and the race is going to require endurance. Chapter 10, verse 36, we were told to endure. In fact, the last four chapters we've been being told in different ways to persevere or endure, keep going. Then you get chapter 11, and all these people who did, they kept going. Do you know what that's telling you? It's possible. It might be incredible, like Enoch, who didn't even die and got to go be with God. We'll talk about that this summer. Or maybe you'll get cut in two, like some of the people at the end of the chapter. Don't know. Each have our own race. But regardless, it's possible to endure. 
That's powerful. And I was thinking about it this week in light of this being a running analogy. Uh, some of you are familiar with the history of running, at least in a broad sense. There was a time when they thought it was impossible to run a four-minute mile. In fact, people were trying to do it for, for centuries, they believe, but they know for sure that it beca people became intentional about trying to run a four-minute mile in the late 1800s. People would do all kinds of crazy things, according to legend, have bulls chase them and all kinds of wild stuff. <clears throat> in the early 1900s, scientists started to say, we think it might be physically impossible for any human being to go that fast for that long until a guy named Roger Bannister on May 6, 1954, did it. Do you know what's really crazy about the story? Forty days later, another guy did it. By the end of the year, several people had done it. And now, it's actually not that abnormal. I went to a race uh, a couple years ago, I think it was 2018, it was called the Sir Walter Raleigh Miler, it happens every year, and every year, there are four or five guys that run a sub four minute mile. In fact, there are even high school runners who currently can run sub four minute miles. The world record today is three minutes, 43 seconds. And I don't know how you know running, but if you see someone run a three minute and 59 second mile, and then a three minute and 43, the guy running the four minute mile looks slow. But once they knew it was possible, then a bunch of people started doing it. What's happening here in this passage is you're going, hey, you're surrounded by all these people who've already done what you're being commanded to do. It can be done. It's possible. But pay attention to who you're around here. Look at this cloud of witnesses that you have. And you, we all know, I think you just kind of know from experience, or maybe you've heard this. Have you ever heard this said before? Show me your friends, just show me your future. The people around us influence our lives and who we become and, and the direction that we're headed. Uh, motivational speaker Jim Rohn, he has a popular statement where he says, you will become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Okay, well, that's something. When I hear those things, I think to myself, just because somebody's got a microphone and they're standing on a stage doesn't mean it's true. Are there, is there actual truth behind this? Like, how do we know if this is true? So have there been studies? So I looked it up this week. Here's some information for you. According to research by social psychologist Dr. David McLean of Harvard, the people who habit you habitually associate with determine as much as 95% of your success or failure in life. That's significant. There was a study that was done um, on different behaviors, and they were trying to see how much do the people you hang out with influence you. And so they looked at things like um, smoking, which is going down decade after decade. There are less, less and less people smoking. But this study showed that people who smoked and had somebody who quit around them were more likely to quit. People who didn't smoke and had people who smoked around them were more likely to start. They say things like this. Smoking cessation by a spouse decreased a person's chances of smoking by 67%, almost 70%. Uh, cessation, or that means you quit, um, by a sibling um, means your percentage went down by 25%. Smoking cessation by a friend decreased chances by 36%. So smoking's going down in America, but you know what's going up? Obesity. Okay, so they did an obesity study. A person's chance of becoming obese increased by 57% if he or she had a friend who became obese in a given interval. Among adult siblings, if one sibling became obese, the chance of the other would increase by 40%. Those are adults. They're not eating the same meals. They're not in the same house just because they're association. Well, people don't want to be obese. Most people don't want to smoke, but everybody wants to be happy. So they did a study. 5,000 people over 20 years. The objective was to evaluate whether happiness could be spread from person to person. So listen to the results. They determined that clusters of happy 
and unhappy people are visible in the network, and the relationship between people's happiness extends up to three degrees of separation. That means the friends of a friend's friend can influence your happiness. That's pretty crazy. But do you know what? Other than showing that happiness and unhappiness can spread like a virus, I laugh when I see this stuff. Because I've been a Christian long enough and studying the Bible long enough that, that what you end up seeing when you believe the Bible is that eventually science catches up. <laughs> and sometimes you hear it like, like this is the one of the popular ways that you'll hear this. It's skeptics sometimes will say, well, the Bible says that, you know, Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. There's not even a city. There's no such thing as the city of Jericho. No one's ever found it. And you know what happens? Then archaeologists go, oh, we found this city. We never knew it existed. It's right in the exact location of Jericho. And look at all these rumblings of the walls that were here. And as a Christian, you go, oh, yeah, well, we kind of knew that for a while now. Well, you read these studies of like the people around you influence your life, but the Bible's been saying that for a long time. It's already been an example of Israel being a bad example in the Old Testament. And remember what Israel was told? Israel's mission was to be a light to the other nations, that they would live differently and separately, but amongst those nations and draw people to their God. The way that Jesus says in the New Testament for us, they let your light so shine before men, they see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Well, it, the Old Testament, that's what Israel was supposed to be doing too. They failed. You know one of the things he told them not to do? Don't intermarry. That wasn't a racist commandment. That was you have me as the one God. They all worship false gods. You go in and influence them rather than having them influence you. But you know what? They thought they knew more than God. So they intermarried. They adopted the idols. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Like It becomes a mess. It goes bad. Because who you're with influences who you become. Or I was reading, I was just scrolling through social media this week and I had a friend post uh, just a little meme that talked about Mark chapter 2 and said it was their friend's faith that influenced this guy's life. And I was like, that is true. I don't know if you know Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, crazy story. There's this guy who can't walk. And if you know anything about first century culture, um, crippled people always hung out with other crippled people because they were usually trying either begging because there was no job opportunity for them or waiting to be healed by a healer or at, you know, the pool of Bethesda, like different places. They're just all with each other. But he's got four friends who know how to walk. And I, I don't know that this is true. The Bible doesn't say that, but I wonder if those four friends were healed by Jesus. Because what you see in the passage is these four guys are taking their friend to get him to Jesus. Jesus is really popular in Mark chapter 2. Everybody's not mad at him at this point. They're not trying to crucify him at this point. There's this new teacher, and he's healing people. And so he's at this house. The house is packed full of people. These five guys show up, four guys carrying one guy on a mat because he can't walk. And they get to the door, and the bouncer's like, you don't belong in this club, so they can't get in. And so they decide they're going to climb up on the roof of this house and tear the roof off. Are you kidding me? Like, I can think to myself, like, I love my friend John. If I was carrying John there because he couldn't walk, I'd be like, we'll come back tomorrow. Like, we're good. I don't want to lift John up on the… Can you imagine taking a 200-pound man and trying to get him up on top of the roof of a house? Because we always talk about what was it like for people when Jesus was teaching and then all of a sudden they lowered this guy down. Like, yeah, that'd be crazy to have something dumped on you while you're sitting there listening. But imagine me and those four guys. I'd be like, we'll be like the Cameron Crazies. We'll just set up a tent. We'll be here tomorrow morning. First thing, Jesus shows up. We're good. But they decide nothing's going to stop us from getting our friend to Jesus. So they go up on top of the roof of this house. They tear the roof off. They drop, it, drop him down. And let me read you what the Bible says so you don't think I'm making this up. Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. If you got your Bible, you can turn there. If not, we'll pop it up on the screen. I think we got that verse. Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. It says this. Once I find it. <laughs> when Jesus saw their faith, 
He said to the paralyzed man, so plural then singular, he saw the faith of the four men and the guy that's coming through the roof, but then he says to the one man, son, your sins are forgiven. You don't think your friends influence your life? Who are you running with? And then you look at what the author of this book says in, in Hebrews chapter 12. Did you notice chapter 12? He puts himself in the verse. He's not like the preacher's going, you people, you need to, would you? He says, therefore, since we, we, us, plural, are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And what's it talking about being a witness? Does that mean the people from Hebrews chapter 11 are watching us? Because that's one definition of witness. Abraham's watching you live your life. Moses is going, man, you should slow down. That's why that soccer ball popped out. Like, what's he doing? Is that what that means? No, I don't think that's what the word witnesses means there. Witnesses, the word, uh, the Greek word is where we get our word martyr, someone who dies for their faith. What are they doing? Witnesses declaring to us something is true. Their faith is worth dying for. I think witnesses here is like what's talked about in a court system. You know, if a judge brings you in to be a witness, you know what they don't care about? They don't care what you believe. They don't really care how you feel. They want to know what happened. Just tell me what, what did you see? What are the facts? Help us know the story. You're a witness here. You're here to declare what you experienced, what happened. And that's what Abraham does when he leaves everything and he follows God. That's what Moses does when he stands before the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, and declares, these people, you shouldn't be holding in bondage. God says, let my people go. You know what it says about Moses in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11? Go up a couple of verses. Verse 25 in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, choosing rather to be mis mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Do you know what Moses is declaring in that? God, you're more valuable than sin. That's what he's declaring to us. He says in verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ, wait, Christ in the Old Testament? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He's declaring there's a greater reward. It's Jesus. Rahab, like you look at these people in here, they're all declaring to you as you run your race. These are your people. Not just your friends you're with. Those people are really important. But the author's saying, hey, you're part of these people. Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Enoch, Noah. These are your people. You can keep, your people kept going. You can keep going. They're declaring to you. God is worthy of this. And some of you might think to yourself, yeah, but those are the superheroes of the faith. I don't know how many football fans we have here, uh, but this weekend was the NFL draft. Anybody here watch the draft? How many people watch the draft? Help me know how to explain this. Okay. Most of you did not. Several of you did. Um, <clears throat> some of you might not know what the draft is. One of my kids came into the living room. I was watching the draft. I was like, it's the NFL draft. She's just staring at it. And they showed a clip. She goes, oh, there's not actually a game? And I was like, no, it's kind of weird, actually, what we're watching here. And I tried to explain it. But what happens is, it's when you get employed by a professional football team. There's only 32 of them. And if you get on one of these teams, it's a dream of most of these kids. They played in college. And they went to this thing called the combine, which is where they measured everything and tried to figure out whether you could jump high enough and run fast enough and lift enough weights and do all this stuff. Could you run sideways fast enough? They've evaluated all this stuff, and then they're picking kids, and the sooner you get picked, the more money you make is the summary of that. And we're watching them get calls. And I said, you know, one of the funny things to me is they call these kids, and they always act surprised. And then they show another shot of them like two seconds later, and they already have the team's hat. <laughs> and so I said, I posted on social media, I said, Hey, I don't know how all this works, but NFL executives, if you're going to call me and surprise me with this new job, let me know so I can order the hat. And I was just kind of joking around, team that I like is terrible, so I posted something about that. One of my high school buddies wrote in there about some of my high school football career, because that's the last time I played football, 26 years ago. And uh, 
I wrote back to him and I said, hey, if you know any agents, let them know I don't have an agent and I'm willing to sign for the minimum amount. I was declaring my eligibility at that point. Because <laughs> you see that sometimes, they'll be talking about these kids and they'll be like, he skipped his senior season, he's declaring for the draft. And I'm like, yeah, he's not stupid. If he's in business school, you should still give him a degree because he's gonna get millions of dollars and he doesn't have to take those stupid classes. Anyway, <laughs> but get your degree, just, just kidding. Um, so you can, anyway, whatever. So I declared, I made myself available. First day went by, no call. Second day, no call. I still haven't gotten a call. Why haven't they called me? Because I'm not qualified, just so you know. Pull a hamstring, emptying the dishwasher, all right? Like, and when I was 20 years old, they didn't call. It wasn't because I failed to declare, because I wasn't tall enough, fast enough, couldn't lift enough weights, couldn't jump high enough. I don't have the qualifications for that job. And so what some of us do is we read Hebrews chapter 11, and we're like, no, but these are the super, I'm just a, just, I'm just a dad. I'm just a mom, I'm just a pastor, I'm just a cop, I'm just a whatever you're thinking. Do you know who these people are? Abraham, the father of our faith. I'm going to tell you right now that if he wasn't in the Bible and Abraham applied for a job at Southbridge, I wouldn't hire the guy. <laughs> he's a moon worshiper who lies after he's converted. So he goes and he follows God. He's a moon worshiper and God calls him like, all right, God, you can do anything, that's awesome. But then he's a liar. Like, I don't even know I can trust this guy. I'm not hire him. I don't invite hang out with him. Moses? You wouldn't keep coming to this church if Moses was a speaker. He, 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 he couldn't talk. <laughs> and he's a murderer. Did you know that Rahab is in chapter 11? She's a prostitute. And God's not looking for the fastest and the tallest and the smartest. He wants people to put their yes on the table. That's what they all have in common. Yep, I'm in. I declare. I declare, God, not for the draft, for you. You lead me. Whatever the course is, I know the prize. It's you. I'm running. We'll unpack this more next week. But you know, the, these runners, they run for, that he's given this analogy for in the, in the Roman and the, um, the Greek games at this time, the prize at the end was a wreath which is really easy for a pastor to go, they got a wreath and it's just like branches twisted together. It's going to rot and leave them stuck in a box in the basement, like whatever you want to make fun of. Just talking about temporary. I'm going to store up all my rewards in heaven. Okay. But think about why they were really running. If you know the culture and the customs, it was really hard at that point to change your position in life. The only people that were famous and wealthy were either born noble or had military, great military heroic experience. Or had been a champion in athletic games. It wasn't really about the wreath. It was about changing their lives. Because after the games were over with, not only did they put a wreath on their head, but they had them sit with the royal family. They've got a new position now. And do you know what you have in Christ? New identity, new life. Even if you're just a baby, you've got new life in Christ, a new identity in Christ. And the closer you get to him, the more joy you experience. Do you want to move forward? Just the first point of this message. Pay attention to who you're running with. We're going to talk about casting off things that hinder you next week. For some of you, application, just FYI, it's people. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We love you. We need you. Thank you for loving us, even when we're very unlovely. And Father, some of us are drifting, call us, call us back. Some of us are walking away from you. Some of us are feeling the pressure, maybe in our jobs, maybe in, in, in our homes, with you and in culture. 
We're wondering if there's is persecution coming. We're feeling more and more marginalized, and, and the, the world's looking a lot more appealing. And Father, will you show us how glorious you are in this moment, even right now, as we sing this song, as we talk to each other, we pray with each other? There might be somebody here who needs to begin a new relationship with you. Somebody needs to recommit their relationship to you. I pray right now they wouldn't let this moment pass. And if you need to trust Christ as your Savior, the way you do what Jesus talked about in John chapter 3 and, and are born again is by acknowledging your need to do something you can't do and save yourself. You need to be saved. You need to be rescued. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. He came. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. He's offering you eternal life, and you have to take it. You take it by placing your faith in Him. And if you'd like to do that right now, just acknowledge your sin before Him. You can pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, say, I believe that your son Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. And I want to place my trust in what He did for me on the cross, and I want to ask Him to come into my life right now and take over. I hand over control. I declare. I put my yes on the table. I'm with you. And if you do that, the Bible promises that you've been forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, and future, that you've got a new identity in Christ. And if you would, just let us know that you've done that, and we'd love to help you grow and take the next steps in your faith. Father, there are many here that have already done that. I need to re-put that yes on the table. God, I pray that right now you'd speak to hearts. You'd have us lay things down, evaluate our relationships, evaluate what it means to even walk in faith with you, to trust you, to say yes to you, to pursue and go after you, knowing that you are really where joy is found. It's in Jesus' name I pray.